people do some crazy things for, for food and, and, and fame. So as I was thinking about that, my mind went back to this, this really uh, funny and, and also revealing story. Back in 2009, it's a true story about a, a, a couple, married couple from Virginia, uh, Mikhail and Tarek Selahi, that crashed President Obama's very first state dinner. Do you remember this? This was for the Indian Prime Minister, Mamohan Singh. And at the time of the incident, she was sort of famous. The, the, the wife was being filmed for Bravo's uh, The Real Housewives of, of D.C. Hopefully you don't know what that show is. But the couple shows up at the White House, um, just pretend like they own the place, like they're an invited guest. They go through two checkpoints. One of them even requires a photo ID, and it's raining, and, and they come to the first gate, and they're like, well, you're not on the list. Well, no, we're invited. So rather than embarrass the guests, they let them go through, thinking they're going to get checked at the second checkpoint, and they walk right into the dinner. I mean, the, uh, the, 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 the wife even dresses up in traditional Indian garb, which caused her to, to stand out, and um, they mingle with guests for a few hours, and and eventually left at the end of the evening. The White House was none the wiser until later that night when, when Mikhail posted on her Facebook page candids with her and President Obama, Vice President Biden, and Rahm Emanuel whenever he was, uh, whenever he was still in, uh, in the White House. Uh, actually, when they started looking into it, they, they went back and, and went through the guest list. They actually found a third guy who was totally unrelated to the couple that snuck in that night as well. I mean, it's like, where's Waldo? I don't even know. They don't even know who this guy is. But, but he was there, just some random guy. Three people, you know, break the secret service. Whenever this, was, this, this comes to light, the Indian security officials were furious. I mean, it was a tremendous embarrassment, obviously, to the secret service and the White House and and the staffers responsible for the guest list. And, and, and you know, being the, uh, you know, the, the humble, uh, self-deprecating people that they were, whenever they were accused they, of, of, of crashing the party, they went on uh, the morning show rotation, and the wife denied being an uninvited guest and, and even said she was so appalled by the accusation that uh, something good's got to come out of this, so she put up her her Indian dress, and her jewelry on eBay and was going to give the proceeds to charity. Well, you already probably know the story. It was finally confirmed that, that they were not on the list. I mean, they weren't even known by anybody in, in the White House. And um, sadly, the couple has since divorced and returned to obscurity uh, where every other reality TV participant goes after their 15 or five or six seasons of, of fame. And I was just thinking about this passage that we're going to look at this morning. The Salahis pretended to be something they were not. And they were eventually exposed when they weren't found on the guest list. And in the Gospel of Luke, in the 14th chapter, I invite you to, to turn there. Jesus is, is at a Sabbath lunch where he exposes some of the guests. And in the process... He makes a parallel to a feast that's much more important than, than a White House state dinner. 
Now, just to pick up some context, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he is all along the way, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about who's getting in, what the kingdom's like, who's not getting in. And we won't turn there, but if you go all the way back to Luke chapter 12, he gives that evangelistic sermon where there's this great multitude, so many people, they're stepping on one another, and, and he preaches this evangelistic sermon about the kingdom. It's a parallel to the Sermon on the Mount. And then in Luke 13, the, the chapter that precedes the passage we're going to look at is just repeated references about, about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like... Uh, it, it's, like, it's like a mustard seed. It's like leaven. And he's talking about the kingdom so much that there's this question at the end of chapter 13 in, in verse 23. And you can look there just to, get a, just to get an on-ramp into our passage. He's talking about it so much. Someone says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus answers... Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, he will, then he will uh, begin to stand outside. You'll begin to stand outside, knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. And then he will answer to you, I do not know you from, from where you come. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and we taught in your streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Now, pay attention to this. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, excluded. And people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Behold, uh, some that are last will be first, and some first, you know, last. And, and the whole chapter, chapter 13, ends with, with Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how, how often I would have gathered you as, as, a chil- as children, as a hen gathers her, her brood, but you would not. And then he says, I tell you, your house is going to be left desolate. And right after that, Luke rolls right from there into this, into this scene of a Sabbath meal. You look at verse 1. On the Sabbath, when he went to dine in the house of the ruler of the, of, of the Pharisees. You see, to, to a Jew in Jesus' day, the kingdom of God was coming on the earth. And it involved a feast that the Messiah was going to participate in. And, and Jews were guaranteed entrance because, that they, because they were the seed of Abraham. And, and Jesus shockingly informs them at the end of chapter 13 that, that that's, that's not the case. God has a, has a guest list. And he's issued a call to enter into the kingdom. It's already been issued. And some will will not come, and, and only those who really understand their spiritual condition will, 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 will enter. And in chapter 14, there's actually four scenes here, and we're going to combine them all together because Jesus reveals to us a, a, the guest list of, of, of the kingdom, those who are coming to, to God's great supper. And verses 1 through 14, there are three scenes there, and we're going to read it in just a second. It's, the, it's the, the exposure of those who are excused from the kingdom. 
And, and then in, in verses 15 through 24, it's a very familiar parable. It's the parable about going on the highways and the hedges and, and compel them to, to come in. That reveals the credentials of those who attend. So you've got the, the exposure of those who are excused from the kingdom, and then you've got the credentials of those who, who, who attend. So we're going to break it in two, but there are actually four, four scenes here. Let's, let's read verses 1 through, through 24, okay? Then we'll go back and look at, look at it. It says, On the Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into the well on the Sabbath, they will not immediately pull him out? And they had no reply or could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited now, notice he shifts from the rulers of the Pharisees to the invited guests. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you uh, will be invited by him. That's by the host. And he who invited you both will, will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you, you will... Begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who's exalted will be humbled. Or whoever who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And, and here's the third scene. And he also says to the man who had invited him, this is the host of the dinner, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." Now, here's the third scene that moves into this parable. I'll say the fourth scene. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, that's Jesus, said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife. Therefore, I cannot come. He, he doesn't even ask to be excused. He just says, I can't come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go quickly into the streets and the lanes and the cities and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled 
For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Overarching theme is the kingdom of God, who's getting in and who's not. There's four scenes and it's broken in two. And in Jesus, Luke here through these, these scenes with, with Jesus where he turns to three groups, unmasked, exposes those who will be excused from the, from the kingdom. He starts with the Pharisees. He moves to the invited guests and then the hosts. And they each represent people who, who, who aren't getting in because of, because of the condition of their, of their heart. Let's look at this, this first scene here with the, the Pharisees. And it's the self-righteous. They're going to be excused. And in verse 1 of chapter 14, Luke gives us the setting and also clues us in on, on why Jesus was invited and what, what's going on here. You've got to pay attention you know, to these little markers in the narrative because they didn't just invite Jesus because they're nice guys. There's a purpose here. Look at verse 1. He went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, and they were watching him carefully or lurkingly. It literally has the idea of, of someone who's laying in wait to waylay someone else. Now, we have, I told this story first hour, we have cats, much to my chagrin, but I have a wife and two daughters, and we didn't buy one, but a stray comes around, and you begin to feed it, and you know what happens whenever a stray comes around. Well, this is a female cat, so the female cat goes and finds a friend, and then the next thing you know, cats have multiplied. So we have like four of them, and my wife says, but they're not ours. We just feed them. They're just strays, but they live in my house and get in my garage, but they're not mine. So I, I don't care for cats too much, but again, I have a wife, so I care for whatever she cares for, but I've, I've watched them. And, and they'll, you've watched a cat try to, try to go after something, and they're, you know, they're, they're slinking through the, you know, through the grass, and they'll, they'll just wriggle, you know, and just, and then they'll, they'll hunch down, and, and you can even watch them position themselves, and then all of a sudden they leap on a, you know, on a butterfly or, you know, or a mouse. That's the idea of this word. They're watching him. I mean, they're waiting to pounce on, on Jesus. Except the problem for them, the problem for the Pharisees is Jesus is no mouse. He, I mean, he's the son of God. He, he knows their hearts. He knows exactly what, what they're doing. And so they're watching, and they're watching for what comes next. That, that's a trap that they've laid for him. Look at verse 2. It says, behold, there was a, there was a man before him who had, who had dropsy. Now pay attention to the way Luke introduces this because we're not told who the man is, but Luke wants us to see that how he just appears before the crowd, especially Jesus. Behold, there was a man before him. That's before the Lord. Now that's important because this man wouldn't have been invited to the ruler of the Pharisee's house on the Sabbath because he has dropsy, which, which is not a bad case of clumsiness. It's it's edema. It's, it's the swelling of, of, a, of an arm or, or some other body part where, where it's retained, retained water. The chairman of our, of our deacons had, had, a, had an infection in his finger. And, and I mean, his whole, uh, he's fine now, but his whole arm swelled up. I mean, just like grotesque. I mean, huge. I mean, it, it looked like something out of a, a science fiction film. And, and that's what this dropsy would have, would have looked like. We don't, we're not told what body part, but to, to a Pharisee, 
that was the evidence of God's judgment. So he wouldn't be an invited guest. He's a setup. And that's why Jesus is being watched. Now look at what Jesus does in verse 3. So behold, the man was before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responds to the lawyers and the Pharisees. He says nothing to the man. He goes, he knows what they're doing. He speaks right to, to the ones who are, are, are watching him. And he asks them a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, the, the cat here is about to be caught in his own trap. And the dilemma for them in the question is if they say yes, then they violated their own self-imposed standards because you're not supposed to do anything, you know, on the, on the Sabbath. But if they say no, I mean, they know that only God's the one who can heal, so they'd be accused of blasphemy. So it says they say nothing. They wouldn't answer. And then in this dramatic fashion, after Jesus answers the question, they say nothing. Look at verse 4. Then he took him, he healed him, and he sent him away. It's, he takes hold of the man, the, the word means to grab or even embrace. So this man appears, he grabs the man, embraces him, heals him, and then sends him right back out the door, almost in the same fashion that he appears. And then Jesus turns and unmasks the Pharisee's self-righteousness. Look at verse 5. He said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into the well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? It's a... It's a lesser to a greater argument. You know, who's more valuable? You'll, you'll, you'll pull out uh, an animal, but you'll, you'll, you'll declare that healing on the Sabbath, you, you won't allow man to be pulled out of, out of disease. I mean, if you want a modern-day example, you've just seen that. You know, you Cecil the lion versus the Planned Parenthood deal. You, you, you've seen how crazy everybody went over the, over the lion. All the while, you, you've got... You know, babies that are being murdered and sold for parts. Great outrage for the lesser. No outrage for, for, for the greater. And they refuse to answer, and Jesus says, here's your answer. Labor ceases on the Sabbath, but compassion doesn't. And they were hypocrites. And they were trying to condemn Jesus, but they actually condemned themselves by, by their own standards. And that's what a hypocrite does. Someone uh, defined a hypocrite as the guy who complains there's too much sex and violence on his DVD player. Now, you think about that one for a minute. <laughs> a self-righteous person is someone who attempts to manufacture their own righteousness. They don't try to measure up to God's righteousness because they can't. And rather than, this is what, what we all need to do, I mean, that's, that's the law. The law doesn't save. The law shows us the bar of God that no one can measure or, or, or meet. When I was a youth pastor, I, I grew up right down the road from Randy Moss. Anybody remember Randy Moss? Famous football player. Okay, the guy is 6'5". He has a 45-inch vertical. Now, I've got like a four-inch vertical. You understand a vertical? Like 45 inches, 12, 24, 36. I mean, he's already over three feet. I mean, if I was com competing with Randy Moss in a jumping contest, he, he, would, he would beat me hands down. But if Randy Moss and I both have to jump to the moon, we're both completely out of luck. The bar of God is high. No man can meet it. 
And you may find somebody who can jump higher than you or somebody who, who is less, but, but if you both have to jump as high as the moon, then, then, then you're out of luck. But somebody who's self-righteous won't measure up to the bar of God, realize that they're bankrupt, and then flee to Christ for, for hope. They, they then create self-imposed standards. They, they, they bring it down to something that, that they think they can, they can meet. The problem is that, that they end up condemning themselves. It's based on human effort. Stephen Cole of, of Dallas Theological Seminary said, a self-righteous person judges the sins of others while overlooking his own sins. A self-righteous person judges others based on selective standards, not on God's Word. A self-righteous person is more concerned about external conformity than with true inner godliness. You know, that's the good Christians don't smoke, don't chew, and don't run with girls who do. When the Bible says that, that righteousness is, 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 is inward, it's, it's a heart matter. A self-righteous person is, is not interested in helping others grow in godliness, but only gaining a following. Jesus told the Pharisees, you, you go out and make proselytes and you make them twice the sons of hell as, as you. And they weren't concerned about where they were going. They were just concerned about a following. A self-righteous person justifies himself by comparing himself to others or by blaming others for his own sins. The extra-biblical standards leads them to attack others while excusing themselves. I came to Christ when I was 24 years of age, and um, I was, uh, was converted in a church that was about 200 people, this small country church in West Virginia, beautiful, beautiful people, loved the Lord, but just don't have the blessing that you have where, where your pastor is, is bringing you the exposition of, of Scripture week in and week out. There wasn't a lot of doctrine. It was, but these were, these were dear, dear people. It was, it was a matter of, of just never having it rather than rebellion or chafing against the Scriptures. And I can remember the very first uh, church fight, church dust-ups, probably a better word, that, that I saw. And and it was by an older man who was in the church who, uh, now this is back in the, this is back in the 90s, and, and so this will sound silly to some of you, but because of how everything has changed, but, but he got just really bent out of shape because the pastor brought, my pastor brought a, a, a TV into the sanctuary to show a missionary VHS, okay, so that dates it a little bit, all right? But, I mean, he went nuts because, you, I mean, you've desecrated the sanctuary by bringing a television set in there. I mean, again, you're not watching, you know, Days of Our Lives or whatever the soap opera of today is. I mean, this is like a missionary video. But he went crazy over that. How could you do that? And this is the same guy every Christmas that petitioned the, the elders at the church to dress up like Santa Claus and pass out candy to the children during Sunday school hour. I mean, so it, it, he's just totally blind. A self-righteous person, when, when they find someone who holds a higher standard, they attack to try to bring them down or else they feel condemned. And, and when they don't measure up in, to their own standard, they always have a reason for why that doesn't apply. And the Pharisees were masters at that. And Jesus knows what they're up to, so he deliberately breaks their standard declares God's true intent, 
and then unmasks them by showing they're violating their own standard. Self-righteous will be excused. Now, look at the second group here in verse, verse 7. These are all the exclusions. Now, he told a parable to those who were in, invited. The key word is, is, in, is invited. It's 11 times in this section, used 11 times. And it says in verse 7, he tells a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. This is a really hilarious scene, I think, because, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, Jesus basically just takes over the lunch. He's the invited guest, and, and he's acting like the, t- the host. And, I mean, you probably think at this point, if the Pharisees invited him to set him up, they're probably thinking, we probably shouldn't have invited this guy. I mean, they might be second-guessing their invitation at this point. And as Jesus is spiritually exposing the Pharisees, in the background, these other guests are jockeying for the chief seats. They're concerned about getting the seat of honor, and it's the choosing of their seat, how they chose the place of honor. It's in the middle voice. They elected or chose. It's the, it's the emphasis of, of they chose the seat themselves. It's the seating was happening during the meal. Now, usually seating happened after the washing of hands, the ceremonial washing of hands, and, and the guests would be welcomed, and then... The guests were seated by rank or, or, or honor. And various cultures do it, do it differently. And at the meal, the guests would recline with one elbow. They would kind of lay on an elbow, and then they would, they, they, they would eat. And hospitality was a big deal. And, and so whoever was seated closest to the host was, was, was more honored. I mean, we kind of do this today with head tables. You know, like at a reception, you go to a wedding reception, these are the, these are the honored guests, and... And it was normal that the most honored guests came in late after everybody was already seated. Again, you might think about a wedding reception, you know, where you wait, you, you go to the wedding and then you go to the reception, you wait on the wedding party for the four hours of pictures and you're starving and then, you know, you wait and they announce, you know, here's the wedding party. And then the last one that comes in, it's the bride and the groom, you know, it's, this is the honored, the honored guests. I don't know, maybe that's where the fashionably late statement comes from. It's, these guests were, on, were jockeying for the choice seats, and it was all about status to them. And Jesus is observing this, and he says doing that's dangerous. Look at verse 8. It says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the place of honor. Don't pick a, the seat of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you would be invited by him, that's by the host. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will be, you'll begin with shame to be taken to the lower place. He says that don't do that because somebody more distinguished may come and you're going to be publicly exposed. And the point of the, the, point of the parable is, is found in, in verse 10. And, and beyond. It's, it's these men were, were trying to exalt themselves before other men. And Jesus says, you might fool the guests, but the host knows. I mean, the other people that are invited may not know where you rank in the position of honor. So you might get into the seat and fool them, but the host knows who's most honored and, and who's not. 
He knows who he's invited and the rank of each. And so, verse 11, Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I mean, that's kingdom language. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. George Herbert, in his little couplet, said, Humble we must be if to heaven we go. High is the roof there, but the gate is low. These were self-promoting individuals. Religious self-promotion might fool the others, but it's not going to fool the host. And, and as far as the kingdom is concerned, you might, you might fool other men with religious props or positions, but, but you won't fool God because He knows if he's gracious, he'll unmask you now because rest assured, he's going to unmask everyone one day when, when, when the host declares the feast, who's in and, and who's not. Turns then to this third group. It's the self-centered. Look at verse 12. He also said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, don't invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. And this is really comical. I mean, he's unmasked the spiritually proud by exposing him as self-righteous, the ones that set him up in a trap. He's exposed the self-promoting who, who try to pretend that they're, they're, they're more than they really are when the host sees, God sees, and, and now he exposes the host for being self-centered. And by this time, I'm sure they would love to rescind the invitation, but Jesus is already in the middle of them, just doing damage. It was a practice in those days to invite guests to your home to eat, and whatever you provided them for your dinner, they would try to outdo you. It's like quid pro quo, right? I invite you to my feast, and you invite me to, to yours. And look at this man's guest list. I mean, it's the Pharisees, it's the lawyers, it's the rulers, it's even Jesus who would be considered a celebrity, if you, if you will, in those days, a well-known rabbi. These were the religious and social elites connected, and one day they're going to return the favor. This man practiced a self-centered religion. You're supposed to, if you have resources, feed others. You're supposed to have a Sabbath meal. You're supposed to practice hospitality. And he was doing it, but he was doing it for, for evil motives. He gave in order to get. He served in order to be served. I mean, you don't have to turn very far to find self-centered religion or self-centered teaching in, in our culture. The popular psychology preaches it. Life is about me. Um, you know, e even I was in, I was in Rome at the end of last year for our high school uh, senior uh, trip. And, you know, the, it used to be, you go anywhere, people are trying to sell you trinkets. And, and there, everywhere you went, everybody's selling selfie sticks. And you've seen them. They're not anything new. But, I mean, just think about that concept. They're not selling trinkets of, you know, of the of icons or otherwise. They're, they're selling, a, you know, a pride icon, a selfie stick. Life is about me. Find yourself. Treat yourself with respect. Get to know the real you. Take care of number one if you, if you don't know one else will. And, 
and you can even look in the church and find it. It's much of American Christianity preaches it. Many mega-angelicals see Jesus as the need meter who just happens to be God, right? I mean, they see the gospel as I will serve God because he will serve me with eternity. The gospel is about going to heaven rather than being reconciled to God, rather than you're on a collision course with, with your creator and you've rebelled against him and you have, you have no hope. And, and the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel is, is not, you know, the light that whisks you off into, into nothingness or paradise. It's the oncoming train of the wrath of Almighty God and, and you're not right with him. But God is gracious in mercy, and, and He came as a man, and, and He fulfilled His own law, and, and then He willingly became a substitute. He earned the righteousness that you need, and, and He paid the penalty that, that you deserve, absorbed the wrath of God on the, on the cross. But they see the gospel about a place, about heaven, and not about Jesus. Jesus is nothing more than a better deal, and that's the way this man is practicing. Um. And Jesus says if you live that way, you'll get your reward on, on earth. He says, don't invite your rich neighbors in verse 12, lest they also invite you in return and, and you be repaid. But, here's the contrast, here's what you should do. When you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because, you, because they cannot repay you. That's why you'll be blessed. They cannot repay for you're going to be repaid at the resurrection of the, of the just. It's a kingdom reference. Why does Jesus say that? Because he cares for the poor? Oh, he does care for the poor, but that's not the main point here. Jesus says, for all those that you serve who cannot repay, God will repay their debt in the kingdom. James 1.27 gives this passage about pure religion which is undefiled before God, is to care for the widows and the fatherless. James is not advocating that the, that the main thrust of the church be about social justice. He's saying the true test of Christianity, true test of whether you grasp the gospel, is how you treat people who can give you nothing in return. The widows and the fatherless can, can give you nothing. And how you treat someone who who cannot repay you in any way, any way, shape, or form, is pretty exposing to the heart. And James says that because it's exactly what the gospel is, is all about. And so after these exposures, he, he, he turns to the credentials of those who are going to attend. And look at verse 15. I think this is hilarious. When one of those who reclined at the table heard these things... Oh, the resurrection is just. He's talking about the kingdom. He yells out, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I mean, this guy's not super smart. I mean, if he's paying attention at all. Because Jesus has just exposed the Pharisees. He's turned to the other invited guests, rebuked them. And now he's went to the host. And this guy's, I wouldn't be saying anything. But he just yells out. Oh, he's talking about the kingdom. I'll say something smart, I guess. I don't know. I look like the, you know, the, the guy in the class that nobody likes. He, he's always got the answer. But look at how Jesus responds. He says, you're right. He said to him, 
And he gives this parable. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Jesus says, you're right. Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Let me explain to you who's getting in the kingdom. He gives this parable. And we don't have time to read it all. But there's a certain man, that's God. The pre-invited guests were Israel. The RSVPs are going out in verses 16 and 17. The excuses are, are coming back in in verses 18 through 20. And then in verse 21, there's a new guest list initiated. And there's room to spare. And then the whole thing ends in verse 24 with the exclusion of the original invitees. He says, For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, just briefly, there's a, a wedding in Israel that could last up to a week. And the guests were told ahead of time about the feast. And um, when everything was made ready, when it was time to start, they, then they would be called. It, it, but they would be invited ahead of time. It's like an RSVP. You know, we do it today. And then when the meal's ready, it was common for the servant to go out and say, it's ready, come. You can kind of see this in the, in the, the parable of, of the ten virgins, the five that were ready and the five that, you know, that, that weren't when the bridegroom, you know, comes. And when that happens here, excuses were given that were lame and even insulting. I mean, these people have already told the host we're coming, so they prepared the food for how many ever people are going to come, and then they just make excuses. So what's the host do? He doesn't postpone the banquet or withdraw the meal. He, he gets new guests. And look at the guest list in verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to the master, and then the masters of the host of the house became angry and said to the servant, "Go quickly into the streets and the lane, the lanes of the city, and, and watch the connection to what Jesus said to the host before. And bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, the people who cannot repay." The guest list is not the standard keepers. It's not those who are approved by men. It's not the self-centered, the wealthy, the connected, but the spiritually poor, those who are crippled by sin, those who are impotent to do anything themselves, the blind, those who cannot repay, those who have nothing to offer God, those who, who give God nothing in return. You understand you give nothing to God in the gospel. Those are the ones that are invited. Those are the, the, new, the new guest list. And he sends his servant out to get them, to find them, to carry them to the feast. And, and look at what it says here in verse 22. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done, and there is still, still room. Jesus is saying two things in this parable. The self-righteous leaders of Israel are going to miss the kingdom and the ones that God invites in their place are the, are the ones who can't repay. The ones who understand that they can't repay. The ones who will make no excuses because they, they understand they don't even deserve to be in the feast. They don't even deserve to be invited. They don't even deserve to, to even come close to the host. And it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. God preparing so great a salvation giving his law, meeting his own demands, giving his life as a ransom. And, and the, the invitation that stands is for those who, who know they have nothing to offer God and are not even worthy to come to the feast. 
I would encourage you, we don't have time this morning, but, but read the rest of, of chapter 14. Because Luke in verse 25 rolls right out of this to a new scene. Now great crowds accompanied him. Jesus gives this, this wide invitation of, of who's going to come to the feast. The, the ones that are excused are obviously upset. He's got this huge crowd following him, and he whittles the crowd down. He breaks every church growth rule known to man. He's got a huge crowd, and he disperses the crowds with three statements. If you don't hate father, mother, brother, sister, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. And look at how chapter 15 begins. The guest list. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. The excused, the exposed are still grumbling. They're still blind in their own sin. But the blind and the crippled and the lame, the ones who get it, the ones who are publicly known and they know themselves exactly who they are, they're drawing near to hear the message of the gospel because the gospel is like water to a thirsty soul to those people. The guest list of God's feast. the beggars like me and you. That's who's getting in. This passage guards us from pride and pretense and serving to get stuff and brings us back to what Christ offers in the gospel. Let me pray for us. Lord, you show us through this human feast You just expose our hearts, you expose my heart, how easily it, it looks to evaluate others rather than myself. How easy it is, Lord, to, to look to see whether someone else is obeying the Bible rather than, than me. Oh, Father, how, how, how concerned we are, what, what others think, our, our stature, our status, and rather than being concerned what you think, the host. And how easy it is to serve for what we get. Father, remind us that we came into the kingdom as, as blind and crippled and, and lame. And you even invited us and carried us to the feast. And help us to live out of that overflow. And to be ever thankful. Remembering where we've been and yet who we are. And draw near to hear you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.